How are we doing? And welcome back to the Millart Podcast. Back at it again, Lesson 28, Chapter 59, The Korean Civil War and American Intervention from 1945 to 1950. Let's dive right in. Key terms and concepts, Kim Il-sung. Some of you might be familiar with the, the Kim family. This one, Kim Il-sung, was the Soviet-appointed leader of North Korea. He was desperately hoping that the Soviets and or the Chinese would come and help out. Eventually, he gets Mao Zedong, the leader of communist China, to come in and do some work and help out. But Kim Il-sung is the North Korean leader. Next one, Syngman Rhee. He is the American-educated, pro-Western, elected leader, maybe call it, say it, president of South Korea. Uh, our boy Ri here is not a big fan of Kim Il-sung, obviously, of course. Um, not a big fan of communists. Eventually rounds up a bunch, bunch of communists. But he is our leader to watch in South Korea. Next key term, Korean People's Army. This is the North Korean army backed by the Soviets, essentially a proxy war. Um, just KPA, every time KPA is mentioned, that is North Korea. In contrast, next key term, Republic of Korean Army, the Rock Army. We've had the pleasure of hosting some rock warriors at the academy, seeing some of them around, some great guys. These are the good guys, the army of Southern Korea at the time. And this came from constabulary forces that originated from the split. Um, originally, the Korean Peninsula after World War II was split between the Northern Soviet-controlled and the Southern American-controlled. And the Southern American-controlled, they tried to set up these, um, the, during the military occupation, tried to set up these constabulary forces that would essentially be police forces to support American ideals and to kind of ease the transition. And the Rock Army kind of came from these guys. Uh, next key term, the warriors of the 8th Army, American soldiers um, coming from Jap the Japan uh, Japanese occupation. Um, there are a lot of shortages at the beginning, under a lot of pressure, underpowered. They had to have their forces bolstered as the 10th Corps was created. But this is really, uh, really the first army on the ground helping out in Korea. Next, we have Operation Chromite. Big-time key term here. Amphibious landing at Inchon. I-N-C-H-O-N. This is the big amphibious landing there. Got to tell you, this is uh, one, of, one of General Douglas MacArthur's big, uh, big points of contention. Most officers, most what the book called responsible officers, were against this operation. But hey, it worked out. It was brilliant. It was basically a bold flanking maneuver, uh, 50 kilometers north of the uh, line um, from Seoul, and basically just a big way to get up and flank in an amphibious invasion. And we know amphibious in invasions have their issues. They, this one had issues with mines, uh, tide problems, fortified problems on the beachfront, but still successful. General Douglas MacArthur brags about it a ton. 
Um, this chapter, we really get to. I, I really in the discussion. I, I don't have a guest tonight, but the discussion is going to be basically my musings about what I think about General Douglas MacArthur and the role of leadership, and how there are some breakdowns and some great advances um, in this in this phase of the Korean War. So stay tuned for that. But that wraps up the key terms. Hey, let's do this chapter narrative summary section one introduction. 1949, things are not looking good. President Truman is now in charge. And you have some unstable Soviets doing some nuclear bomb testing, doing some crazy business over in Berlin. Uh, the uh, wall you might be familiar. Um, China, communists. Not cool, guys. Uh, basically, we have in-house rivals as well within the military. This is actually causing problems. It's not just, you know, beat Navy kind of stuff. It's legitimate issues, especially with the drawdown and spending um, but you know, Korea, this, this splitting of Korea, a big time problem, but eventually this Korean war completely Im- would impact the, uh, cold war policy the United States would have moving forward. So think of that as your end state, how, how this affects the cold war policy might be a question on the T who knows China at the end of this also becomes more united and powerful because of its actions. Um, and this this chapter really talks about the first six months came in three phases. At first, you had the uh, South Koreans, UN versus the communists fighting for Pusan, P-U-S-A-N, fighting for this port. The only way the Americans could smartly and effectively assist on the Korean peninsula is if this port of Pusan, which I think should be a key term, um, is open. So if it was open, the Americans would come on in. Second phase is a United States amphibious assault at Incheon, and we're back, baby. Uh, The chapter talks a lot about how the American influence was the only way that this was that this was possible. We heard that before. Um, Third phase is the UN drives north. Finally, the UN gets it right, Um, starts driving north. Big time stuff, though. Air and sea, we own it. Always have. Well, not always have, but we probably always will. And Soviet uh, and China really sticking out of it. Had they come in, World War III was imminent, um, but they stayed out of it. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, Stalin's thought process as well as Mao Zedong's thought process there. That wraps up the intro. Next section, section two. You got the aftermath of World War II. This section just briefly talks about how Korea was largely ignored in World War II. This this Soviet-American split, you're going to hear a lot of references in class to the 38th parallel. Excuse me. This basically goes across the peninsula, is referred to as the waste of Korea, um, and eventually the fight for the 38th parallel, and the debate about whether or not we should go north of the 38th parallel. 38th parallel, should I think, should be a key term. Something to think about. Throw that in your paper. Um, the debate about whether to go north of this parallel and try to unify Korea or to stay south of it and secure it much better. Um, you know, history shows that, you know, we're still have this kind of DMZ kind of action going on. But anyway, Americans are having a hard time after uh, Second World War, um, you know, making sure we have so many military occupancies going down, we've got to draw down. Um, we're, we're having a hard time getting buy-in from the South Koreans, having a hard time establishing good police forces that will support American ideals. Um you know, uh, we're still trying to help, though. 
even though you know we're having a hard time there's this re- rebellion a harvest rebellion a bunch of farmers um but i don't want to i don't want to downplay this because this is critical this is basically you know prices rice prices were not good um and there's this rebellion you you know it harkens back to you know kind of a Shays rebellion-esque kind of move where this insurgency just kind of begins or i guess it was always there but this happens in south korea this rebellion and then this begins the insurgency that will try to undercut the efforts in South Korea and the constabulary forces operating in South Korea. So that wraps up the second section, Aftermath of World War Two. Section 3, War of Subversion in South Korea. We hinted at it with the insurgency last, last section. Uh, in 1952, terrorism and pacification rampant, rampant struggle in South Korea, having a lot of problems there. The UN decides to step in, sponsor some elections, and our and our boy, key term, Syngman Rhee, is elected president. Uh, you know, there's there's some contention about how this how this election went, and a lot of the communists in the South obviously didn't support this, but it doesn't matter. The the election happened. Deal with it. Rock Army, our guys are uh, are taking over. United States, we're out. We take out some troops. Our troops that stay there are behind are just really just advisors. You know, not much really going on with American troops there. The Rock Army and the UN, you guys got this. We're out. Rock Army grows and trying to purge a bunch of communists, you know, trying to get rid of those, going commie hunting. And, uh, you know, that probably doesn't help the whole terrorism thing. Communists trying to uprise and all that good stuff. Um, but basically, Kim Il-sung in the north goes back to Stalin. He's like, yo, get us some help. We'll win this peninsula. We'll have a communist state here, and we'll call it good. Um, if you go in the, se- in the section, section three, um, there's basically a list of why Stalin doesn't go in. Just to summarize, he would not go in with the Russian Soviet forces, Soviet Russian forces, unless Rhee's power was weakened, unless the Rock Army was, like, very, very weakened, pretty much out of the fight. Um you know, he wanted, Stalin wanted some Chinese communists to get in there to start fighting too, and wanted to overthrow the economy by destroying some rail lines, and, you know, he wanted, he wanted the uh, RPA, or the KPA, excuse me, the KPA, the bad guy army in the north, to be much bigger than it was. Basically, Stalin wanted the Koreans to do all the dirty work to the point, the North Koreans to do all the dirty work to the point where the war was almost won, and then he'd finally come in so graciously with his support. Yeah, uh, bad guys do bad things and make bad deals. Um, that's that's what Stalin's looking for. Essentially, um, you know, U.S. is pulling out. Of course, that's one of the things Stalin wanted. Stalin did not want these to catch these hands. You know, I mean, he saw what we can do. Our nuclear program, it worked. Um, so that's what he wanted. That was a big point of contention for Stalin. Um, basically North Koreans are feeling themselves. Uh, they're, they're, they're like, they don't think the Americans are going to fight hard. They don't think the, they don't really respect the rock army. They're, they're thinking, all right, we're about to drive down. We have all this armor, all this artillery, excuse me. And they're going to get that moving South and they just, they just get after it. And it's just a crushing attack. They use amphibious attack with tanks. Um, they, they had some problems and they just, Thoroughly, uh, thoroughly destroyed in the initial offensive, and Amer- on the state side, people thought that Seoul was all but lost after only a short time in fighting. 
And that sets the stage. End of section three. Section four, let's talk about the North Korean offensive nearly succeeding. Harry Truman and the Americans save the day. Isn't that a great way to start off the section? Uh, essentially, KPA, Northern Northern Korea, was seen as the aggressors by the United Nations, even though they tried to claim they were freeing freeing South Korea from the you know the terrible election and and giving them the power and the freedom of communism doesn't really sound all that free anyway uh the threat of nukes was basically the only way we were we were you know keeping keeping uh the soviets out this containment idea of just keeping the soviets at bay and keeping it proxy not getting too tight un calls for the rescue mission soviet union was actually boycotting uh the committee that voted on this the security council and so they could not veto um, uh, that that did not play out well for them because it is approved, and Truman gets after it, gets ready to go with UN Security Council blessing. Uh, we're about to get our hands dirty. Roll up the sleeves. Let's go. Section five, fighting withdrawal. KPA almost won. Very close. Some commando unit was very close to just completely overwhelming the Southern Army and just making their way through. However. Airstrikes to slow them down, and then General Dougie Mack, Douglas MacArthur, makes his way onto the peninsula and starts to raise some hell. With some airstrikes fighting to the Han River, two U.S. divisions were fighting to protect the Pusan uh, uh, port, and then we had to mobilize National Guard and Reserve units to get boots on the ground and start start ripping it up. So basically this section just talks about how we get that foothold at the port of Pusan, and we start to just make some moves with airstrikes to try to slow down this North Korean advance with the KPA um, and get our guys there so we can begin to fight back. Section 6, let's talk about the UNC revival, not talk about Chapel Hill. We're talking about the United Nations Command Revival. First step, save Pusan. That's how you get the U.S. support. Second step, you grab some of that air power and use that against the tanks and supply lines that are just just damaging, just destroying the rock army at this point. And then three, time for our favorite, amphibious landings. You know, uh, the, the, the KPA, Northern Korean Army, overstretched, way overstretched. They, and, and, you know, they had to keep sending more people to hold. And then the United States, we had a hard time too. We had to send more troops to bolster the line, the perimeter around Pusan. Um, and then, essentially, in the east, um, where the KPA was fighting a lot of the rock, there was a, a war of attrition going on between the KPA and the rock army. Um, this east coast campaign was not doing great. However, eventually overwhelmed and exhausted the KPA, won that little foothold in the east coast. Now we're able to bring everything to bear. Basically, this 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 UNC revival, we just buy time at the beginning of this section, and we're talking about how we're getting our troops ready to go. And then we bring everything to bear. Now it's time to go. Tons of local labor helping out at the Far East Command Headquarters. Um, definitely needed that happening, but we needed better leaders. We needed. We finally had some proven colonels that were going to come on board, and it was going to be it was going to be some good times. All right, that's how that's how we're going to really get things going. That's why we talk about leadership is so important. We had some we had some career officers at points in this war that did not have any command time during World War II jumping in on the action, 
And that, that obviously, of course, caused some problems when you're trying to just win a war, when you're trying to get some guys that have been out of the out of the loop off the line for a little bit too long. But now we got some good colonels ready to go. Um, I marked this in my notes. General Douglas MacArthur uses a lot of mission command for those fans of MX-400, even those for those of you that did not like MX-400. Mission command, he did st- gave strategic intent, but operational freedom to his air and naval forces, and that was huge. That was huge. That was a huge reason why we were able to do the things we were able to do. And then the United States was able to own the sea and the air. General Douglas MacArthur doing a great job of mission command. Had a lot of losses from ground fire, but this these raids, these bombing raids, were just phenomenal. Saved the entire campaign right then and there. Good stuff by the Americans. Section 7, entitled The Pusan Perimeter. North Korea in a rush. They're trying to get this one grand offensive, trying to bolster all their forces and get after it. So if you imagine the southern portion of the peninsula as a box, just draw a square, that bottom right corner is essentially what the South Koreans, Americans, and UN are trying to fight to defend. And so they're going for deep battle. North Koreans, KPA, going for that deep battle. They're trying to get after this this port. However, two weeks go by, good guys win. Always love to hear that. We had some insider info from some interrogations from prisoners, also caught some radio transmissions. So we knew to bolster our forces at the point of attack, um, and we were just able to fight that back, and things went great. So we defend this perimeter. The Americans can get supplied. Pusan fight, absolutely critical to keep the Americans on the island, on the peninsula, and then now we are ready for the offensive. Section 8, this is a long one. I think this is one, if I were to give one section for you to just skim over real quick, give this podcast a little pause, skim that over and come back, give that a shot maybe. This is Inchon, you know, this is where we go and recapture Seoul. Not not an ideal place to land, it's on the uh, on the western coast, uh, the tides have some problems, there are, there are minefields supposedly there, there's a big harbor side defense, and you gotta be afraid of the armor coming out of Seoul to do the counterattack. Not a good look. General Douglas MacArthur insists upon it. He's a veteran of the amphibious assault. Very good at it. Good officers, not a fan. A lot of the guys, you know, that were kind of kissing up to uh, Dougie Mack, maybe, maybe thought that was a good idea. A lot of reasonable officers did not. However, um, the, the mines and everything, despite that, the harbor defense, the armor from Seoul... Uh, General Douglas MacArthur says, nah, 1st Marine Division, you guys are going to go. You're going to go across the mudflats over the top, and you're going to go take this beachhead. Marines, of course, say, sure, why not? Um, so we go, we're going up the west coast. We're pretty far north of our, our current line, our current perimeter, and we're basically going to just grab a big beachhead, win Seoul back, and have that flank um, and take it to the North Koreans. However, the North Koreans guessed wrong. Kim Il-sung, sure listen to your advisors. We were going to attack Incheon, but you went and tried to defend a different part of the peninsula on the east coast, and that's where all the mines went. Not a good look. We were able to get through this, I think would be a cool key term, the Flying Fish Channel. That's how we got into Incheon. That was really the only way the large ships can get through. Had they mined that, we would have had a bad day. They did not, so we had a great day. Um... That's that's basically how we make our way into Inchon. 
Um, we were challenged in getting that fire support um, on land, but the Navy did some great stuff. Um, and we were able to get that beachhead and win at Inchon. And when Douglas MacArthur um, is reporting back, this is where you know some bad rap stuff comes through Douglas MacArthur. The, the chapter says it reeked. The report reeked with self-congratulatory statements, something to that effect. Um, come on. You know, you, you had a good win. A lot of people doubted you, but no one was hoping you would lose. You know, you, you don't have to be like that, I guess. Um, but that's just, you know, kind of sets the stage for people who might not be fans of General Douglas MacArthur. But again, hats off to the Navy. Some great gunfire. Um, and in one week, Seoul is back in good guys' hands. Uh, General Douglas MacArthur has a very emotional moment with uh, Sigmund Rhee. In Seoul, in the damaged Capitol building, um, 70-year-old men crying, uh, praying together over the victory and the return of Korea to the good guys. And now, and now here's, here comes the problem in Korea. Have what's called victory disease. I'm just coming up with tons of extra key terms for y'all, but this would be a cool one. Because despite this great victory at Incheon that everyone thought wasn't going to work, Hey, we still have a lot of dudes fighting down in the middle of the peninsula. KPA is not giving up. Um, there, there are a lot of logistical issues that we're overlooking. This victory disease, to summarize, is basically like, hey, we just won, and now we're going to rest on our laurels a little bit and overlook some of the problems we had. Um, we were very weak. Our supply needed to get there because we had just been fighting for a long time. Transpo in-country, not going great right now. Rail lines, not good. Um, so we're going to basically take an operational pause at this time, get ourselves back together, get our minds right, and then get after the fight. Let's talk Section 9, Decision to Unify Korea. Sigmund Rhee, in short, he wants to own this island or peninsula. He wants this. He wants to extend his rule over everybody. You know, there are several options. Do we just have a misaligned nation do we just let them kind of live in peace do we just kind of do throw a dmz up and you know call it good do we go up north try to unify have some elections does that work out but re doesn't re's not a fan re just wants it do we just disarmament do we guarantee you know this sovereignty of this peninsula i there's a lot of decisions to make for a lot smarter dudes than i uh china is the unity problem you know, I, I'm a I'm a blame it on China. It, you know, the problem is China obviously wants to keep this whole communist thing going for some reason. You know, I'm sure they have a bunch of good communist reasons why I'm not a communist, so I wouldn't know. They have some reasons why they don't want to have non-communist nation um, on their border, probably because they know that uh, the United States we got a big stick, and we're not communists and we're not fans of communists, so. Probably not a good idea to have a border with someone that could pair up with the United States. But anyway, um, you know, China going full mobile against an attempt to unify Korea. Big, big time threat. Um, The UNC, the United Nations uh, Command, can go over the 38th. That says that's okay. You can go north of the 38th parallel. But unity, not the plan yet. They're kind of just brushing that under the... You know, on the rug a little bit for the moment. They got to secure the politics first. This is big for President Truman. He wants to make sure everything goes all right. So, what do you do? You fire your Secretary of Defense and blame him for all the problems you've been having. And that's exactly what he did. And then our boy, General Marshall, George C. Marshall, 
back in action, baby. And we're going to get after it. Now we're going for unity. Plus, we're going north of the 38th. With a veteran commander and marshal and a lot of support from the UN, we're going north of the 38th, and we're going to unify this peninsula. 10th Corps is going to flank around all the way to the other side of the island. Amphibious invasion at Wonsan, and then on the north, that's on the northwest side. And we're going to drive them to Siberia. Um, 10th Corps, you know, some the commanding general there wanted to use them to march to Pyongyang, but another another division would take that over. We're basically poised now. We're going across the 38th. We're going further north, and we're going to start taking it to the North Koreans. Section 10, march north to win the war. Kind of leaves us on a little cliffhanger, because as we know, this war doesn't end. War doesn't end here. Kim Il-sung is basically, you know, looking to defend, is trying to is trying to get Mao Zedong into the fight. And what does Mao Zedong say? All right, let's do it. We're having some success in the middle with the good guys. The coast not not looking great, having some issues, you know, but we're but and we're having we're seeing North Korean troops start to break for the Yalu River, which is the border between Northern Korea and China. Uh, MacArthur is chided by President Truman for his actions. He was kind of being a little bit too, a little bit too bold, a little bit over the line, um, you know. And and but then eventually at, at a at a speech at Wake Island, um, the president and General MacArthur were talking, and MacArthur made everything sound like a victory speech and all this stuff. Everything looks great. So you know you're getting in this mindset. Oh, the war is won. Things are broken. You know, never a good thing to do when you saw boots on the ground, an enemy in pursuit. Um, Doug MacArthur just, um, you know, he doubts Sigmund Rhee, which is never a good thing when the commander over there doubts the president of the area. Um, and MacArthur, he's 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 convinced China's not coming. He uh, he, he really doesn't think. There's a chance that Chinese are become involved, and then eventually we capture the waste, capture that 38th parallel, cap, set up a good perimeter there, and have a nice little front moving north. And now the South Koreans are going kami hunting um, again. Probably some war crimes here and there. I'm not sure, but I, I would venture a guess. Probably not doing it in the most uh, humane way possible. And as as we move north, we begin to see the enemy disappear. Start to hear some reports of enemy along the Yalu River. Maybe there's something they know that we don't. Why are they retreating so much? Maybe they're trying to rendezvous with somebody? Let's think about that for a minute. As we move on to Section 11 in the conclusion, we have a lot of unprepared troops who have been fighting for a long time digging in for the winter. In their minds, they're thinking they're going home. They think they're done. They think the war is over. They think they'll be home for Christmas. However, they don't know what the North Koreans know, and that's a problem. What they don't know is that they have an entire new war ahead. A little hubris action. Shout out to Coach Munkin. This might set the stage for the next chapter and the rest of the war. That concludes the chapter narrative summary. All right, I'm going to have a little discussion with myself here, just my own thoughts on the chapter, um, just things I think were important. First off, I think the big thing to put into any kind of assignment or graded event when it comes to this is just kind of talk about how the I think the key point, we we jump into the war and, and, and save um, save the day, 
But we have to really secure that Pusan uh, port first to get the Americans there. And then from there, we do this bold flanking maneuver, Operation Chromite going around, win at Inchon. But the whole time, there's this kind of underlying sense that we think we got it made, we think we're good, you know. But, you know, we're having some depleted forces and all this stuff going on. And, and the leadership, you know, like I said, we have these career officers in there leading the combat troops on the ground. And they're just trying to get – because they mandated that. They didn't They didn't give much leeway, uh, they being the strategic leaders. They said they wanted to get those career officers some command time in the field. And, you know, there are obviously benefits to that. Um, but it's also difficult when you're trying to fight and win a war with experienced leaders. And, and you know, you think General Douglas MacArthur – I think that's what I'm going to focus on for the rest of this brief little discussion with myself. His leadership style is very much so I'm right and I'm going to keep saying I'm right until you all are either too tired to say I'm wrong or until I can convince you I'm right. And that, you know, it worked out at Inchon, but had they, you know, in theory had the KPA North Koreans mined Inchon, the Flying Fish Channel, things could have gone catastrophically wrong to an already under undersized underdeveloped you know army that really wasn't prepared for full-on invasion um obviously we're americans we can go anywhere do anything win any war but at the same time we were having some problems and we were just coming off a world war and that that this starts to begin the i think in my mind the era where the politics and the war start to become much more intertwined because we're spending a lot of money over in korea and, you know, you think about what's coming next in the future, the Vietnam War, how much politics was involved there. You can start to see how Korea sort of sets the stage for the, the Cold War, evading war and things like that. And it also sets up how people start to think about uh, American military involvement. That's all high-level thinking stuff. Let's bring it back down to General Douglas MacArthur, just getting after it, making bold moves. But, you know, his relationship with the president, um, as you know, eventually kind of deteriorates. But he, at the time, President Truman needed a bold, a bold guy to get after a bold task, and General Douglas MacArthur did a great job. General Marshall, awesome job. Um, it's really getting after it, and I got to really applaud um, uh, Marshall for getting in there and being the right pick. Truman being able to get the guy in there and be able to go and have that confidence to go north of the 38th parallel. Because in my mind, I think you have to. You know, you can't just reestablish the same line. I think you got to kind of send a message. So I'm a big proponent of going north of the 38th. And I think unifying Korea probably was the best thing at the time with the context and information they had. Looking back, 2020, um, maybe better to split it up. But communism, as we know, it's not it's uh, it's not a great thing to have in the world. And people were probably obviously very against that and were willing to put those troops down and make it happen, make it go away. So I think that would be something cool to talk about in class tomorrow, just have that little debate you know, should we have gone north of the 38th? Should we have tried to unify? Um, I'm not an instructor, but I think that'd be a cool debate to have because, you know, you can see what we did and you can see where we are now when it comes to Korea. And maybe we talk about some uh, effects there. And, you know, the reading objectives, identifying the reasons for U.S. intervention in Korea, um, summarize operations conducted by North Korea and U.N. forces going up until November 1950, and, <coughs> excuse me, and explaining U.S. objectives in Korea after chromite, you know, why did the Truman administration feel compelled to interfere in a Korean civil war? Um, I would say, you know, China. Big thing, China, Soviets, trying to keep them from getting too powerful because, you know, Korean Peninsula, hop, skip, and a jump to start making some moves. 
closer to occupied territory by the United States, and that's no bueno. We don't need communist power taking over the Far East. Evaluate the response of the U.N. forces North Korean invasion at the three levels of war. Uh, not really too great on really any level. Strategically, I guess, you know, trying to stand up the rock army and all this stuff. I mean, the U.N. has its issues, but um, I think the best thing the U.N. ever did was get involved so Truman would get involved to support the U.N. because Truman, President Truman, was a huge fan of the U.N. And then assess Truman's decision to allow MacArthur to send his forces across the 38th parallel. Oh, there you go. Um Instructors did think that was a good idea. Uh, should political leaders allow operational success to define war aims? Ooh, I like that. I like that. Should you just should you let victory get to your head and say, "All right, you know what? We've been winning. And we're going to get after." It. As my as a good buddy of mine, Andre Tomchek likes to say, especially when it comes to investing, prior performance does not indicate future results. And on that, I will leave end the discussion portion. Um, and I'm not going to do a little, uh, you know, I'm not going to do too much here of this uh, frivolous uh, discussion at the end. But now I'm going to get into some stuff. Maybe, you know, for those of you dedicated listeners that like a little bit of chaser after the uh, after the academic part. Um, some things I've been thinking about on my mind um, recently looking into the Airbnb business as a young lieutenant um, going to Fort Campbell. Nashville is a great area. Maybe that's something you look dive into a little bit. Check that out. Uh, maybe trying to get a little place, rent it out, Airbnb, have it pay for itself, so you can have one week that one weekend a month, you know, in the city in your own place, own stuff and everything. That could be pretty cool. And then maybe have a little bit a uh, little bit of side income. Uh, you know, hit me up in the DMs if you want to talk about it. If you're interested in trying to do that, wherever you're posting, um, I could tell you there's there's a decent amount involved, but you get a couple guys to go in on it. That could be a pretty cool thing think i'll do like a little booklet about it if i'm able to be successful but um what else what else can we talk about here oh um something interesting we could uh maybe talk about is uh what are your what are the what are the best or corniest or funniest uh pickup lines you guys have ever used or heard i think that'd be a pretty funny thing to bring up and uh maybe you know maybe if someone gives the best one give a little shout out um Maybe a little shout out and see and throw that up on the story to get a vote about the best pickup line. See how those work. Maybe talk about it on the next podcast. Speaking of which, if you or anyone you love would like to be on the Mill Art podcast, um, we're definitely accepting applicants. I mean, you don't really have to be all that great at Mill Art because I know I'm not. Um, so, yeah, if you are interested or you know someone who is, please uh, hit us up in the DMs or you can just talk to me, whatever, um, and we'll do our best to get them on the show because we're always loving to have uh, some good – some good people on the show. I know we have uh, we have a good little doc of people coming up. Less than thirty, the the great John Reynolds, um, will be coming on the show, and then we'll have a cow, Mary McCurry, for less than thirty one. Hey, quick plug: Mary McCurry's coming on because she wants to give her in class presentation to spin, give it a little practice. That sounds like a good idea to me. That's basically what these are. Um, so yeah, so you know, if anyone wants to come on, let me know. And in the DMs, shoot me your best, funniest, or corniest pickup line. Um, that could be pretty funny. But anyway, good luck with Millart.